passage this morning is from Luke chapter 11. You can find it in your Bibles or printed in your bulletin. Let me just say before we read it as you're turning there, uh, if you're a visitor, if you've never heard this before, just to let you know we've got a few different spaces for you. So the kids' gym back there, we've got the sermon if you need to get away and move around a little bit but you want to hear the sermon, it's back there. We've got a special needs room in the back right-hand corner of this hallway if you need more silence but want to hear the sermon, you could do that. We've got a nursery just right through this wall here if you need to take your children to nursery. All those are available to you. And I'll also let you know as we begin to look at this passage, you'll notice that the insert on the bulletin is blank. That's what happens when you go on vacation the week before you preach. So I'll make no excuses. There's no outline. You'll have to make your own. Luke chapter 11, beginning in verse 37. Let me read aloud. This is the Word of God. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked Him to dine with Him. So He went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that He did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give his alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb, and you neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. Would you please be seated, and would you join me in a word of prayer? Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, and we ask, dear Father, as we look this morning at the Gospel of Luke, chapter 11, that you would open the eyes of our heart, that you would give us ears to hear, that you would give us eyes to see that we would understand our need for You, that we would see the righteousness of Christ Jesus, and we would cast our hopes upon Him. May You move and work among Your people in a supernatural way by Your Spirit to draw our hearts to You. We love You. We thank You, Lord God. It's in Your name we ask all of these things. Amen. Well, Luke chapter 11, uh, beginning in verse 37, this morning, Jesus goes to dine in the home of a Pharisee. And the word for dine that's used in verse 37 is not the typical word for dining. It's actually a word that means to eat a light meal. It means to eat a lunch, a brunch, or maybe even hors d'oeuvres. So Jesus goes to the home of this Pharisee to eat this light meal lunch, and we would expect a light lunch would facilitate a light conversation. But Jesus often does the things that we least expect. 
Summary of the conversation can be found in verse 44 where Jesus says, you are like unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing it. And in case you're wondering, this isn't a term of endearment. It's not a phrase of commendation. These are striking words that Jesus uses. It's like a a verbal slap to the face of the Pharisee in his own home. It reminds me of when I was a teenager. I grew up in a church in Pennsylvania that was more than 300 years old. It was, as you would imagine, a colonial New England church building. Picturesque. And beside the church building was this a massive graveyard. And the graveyard was full of tombstones and mausoleums, stone wall that went around the entire property, as far as the eye could see. There were gravestones in that graveyard from the early 1600s. And something interesting had happened during the, the life of the church. I'm not sure exactly when this tradition had begun, but somewhere along the way, the leaders of the church had started to allow the teenagers to do their sports in the graveyard. I don't know why. By the time I became a teenager, we were playing football in the graveyard, soccer in the graveyard, tag, capture the flag at night. We did everything in the graveyard. And reflecting on that, it doesn't seem, whoever made that decision, doesn't seem like a great idea. Having teenagers do sports with 400-year-old gravestones. But we did it. And every once in a while, we would arrive on a Sunday evening for a youth group and we would be dropped off at the church building, and the the youth leaders would be there to greet us, and they would sometimes say something like this, tonight when you play in the graveyard, be mindful that the upper part or the lower part or the left side or the right side, be mindful that there's a fresh grave being dug. Be careful not to play near it lest you fall into the grave, okay? And we would go, and we would avoid the new grave that was dug, and we would play football in the graveyard. This morning, Jesus is referencing something similar. Not the exact thing, but He's saying to the Pharisee at the end of this conversation, you are like a pit in the ground that is full of rotten, decomposing stuff. And if not careful, people will fall into you. You are a danger to those who are unaware. And the question that we need to ask this morning is for Jesus to so rebuke the Pharisee. What leads to this point of severe and harsh rebuke? What are the things that Jesus will speak to that will culminate in verse 44? This morning, I want to talk about three things that Jesus addresses in this passage that will help us to understand why He's so severe with the Pharisee. The first is a practical observation about how Jesus engages the Pharisee. Okay, so first, as we look at Jesus here, Jesus uses the ordinary circumstances of life to provoke spiritual reflection. He uses the ordinary circumstances of life to provoke spiritual reflections. As I said, verse 37, Jesus goes to dine with this Pharisee. He's going to have lunch with the man. It's not the first time that Jesus has dined 
with the Pharisee. We've already read this in the Gospel of Luke. Back in chapter 7, Jesus dined with the Pharisee. If you remember, the Pharisees are often mentioned in the Gospel of Luke. The Pharisees are a group of people who had uh, self-identified and set themselves apart even from the ordinary Jews. And so they considered Gentiles unclean, but they also considered the rest of the Jewish population unclean. If not for their fastidious commitment to the rules to following the law, right? And what I mean by that is that the Pharisees had built these rules to help them follow the law of God. And then they had built rules to help them follow the rules to help them follow the law of God. And then they had built rules to help them follow the rules to help them follow the rules to help them follow the law of God. Okay? It, to absurdity. And so this morning, as we look at this passage, Jesus enters into the home of this Pharisee, and as he sits to dine with this man, just by his self-identification as a Pharisee, Jesus already knows something very substantial about this man. He knows something of the man's inner commitments. He knows something of this man's worldview. And what does Jesus do? He goes into the man's home, he reclines at the table, and he says, all right, let's eat. Let's get to it. We're here for lunch, right? And the passage says that the Pharisee was astonished, which is a word, if you want to think of a visible picture of this word, it's like he put his hand over his mouth and he gasped audibly. Like, did he really just do that? Did he really just walk into my home? Recline at the table without washing his hands? And unless you think that the, the problem here is that, that Jesus has these filthy hands and he's like eating spare ribs or fried chicken and, the, and the, the Pharisee is thinking like, oh, this is unsanitary. How could Jesus ever eat like this? That's not the case of what's happening in Luke chapter 11. As a matter of fact, it's likely that Jesus indeed washed his hands as he entered the home, but what he did not do was the ceremonial cleaning of his hands. And this was much more meticulous and involved. Okay, it was one of those rules that the Pharisees had concocted to allow the people to follow the law of God, rules upon rules. Let me give you an example of what the Mishnah says, which is the Jewish writing on the law. This is what the Mishnah says concerning the ceremonial washing of hands. See if you can follow along. The hands are susceptible to uncleanness, and they are rendered clean by the pouring of water up to the wrist. Thus, if a man had poured the first water up to the wrist, and the second water beyond the wrist, and the water flowed back to the hand, then the hand becomes clean. But... If he poured both the first water and the second water beyond the wrist, and the water flowed back to the hand, the hand becomes unclean. If he poured the first water over the one hand alone, and then he bethought himself and poured the water over the other hand, only the one hand is then clean. If he had poured the water over the one hand and rubbed it on the other, it becomes unclean. But if he rubbed it on his head or on the wall, it remains clean. So there you go. Pretty easy, right? 
I, don't, I couldn't have lasted five minutes in the home of the Pharisee, okay? To me, it sounds like an online IQ test. You get if A, then B, and C, and if not C, then D, but if E, then not A, B, C, and D, and you're thinking, I can't make sense of this. Where does one begin and the other end? That's the cleaning of the hands that Jesus does not do, okay? And you see what's happening here is that Jesus is using this moment for an entryway into discussing spiritual matters, right? Jesus uses the ordinary circumstances of life for the uh, provoking of spiritual conversation. And if you look at what Jesus does in this passage, you have to step back and say, wow, this is simply amazing. Jesus plans this in only a way that Jesus can. And in the course of three minutes in the home of the Pharisee, he's gone ten layers deep to begin talking about very substantive conversation about the mercy of God. The conversation around the lunch table with the Pharisee had moved way past the weather and the hill cats and the politics of Rome or of Jerusalem. They were past the surface and they were having a substantive conversation. One of the things I, I want to encourage you with this morning is uh, we ought to ask the question, why do we fail to do this ourselves? Why do we fail to use the ordinary circumstances of life to provoke the very deep, meaningful conversations about eternal matters, about spiritual things? There's often a lot of reasons that we fail to do that. One of them is the fear of man, right? Okay, we're going to the home of the Pharisee, but if you don't wash your hands, he might never invite you back to lunch. Yeah, that's the reality. I don't think he would, okay? As a matter of fact, the commentators who speak about this passage, they say it's likely that no one had ever set foot in the home of the Pharisee and not washed their hands to prepare for the meal. You just knew you're in the home of the Pharisee, you do this, okay? This is like the first time ever this has happened in his home. Of course you wouldn't be invited back into this home. But it's the fear of man, right? Well, what are people going to think of me? What's going to happen if I do have that conversation? What's going to happen if I, if I do begin to talk about these weighty matters? Will they reject me? Maybe they do, so what? Another reason we don't do this is because we just don't want to put in the work and the effort, right? That's probably true of me. I know it's true of many of us, okay? The, what Jesus does here requires forethought, wisdom, preparation, exercise. It's not the first time he's done it. Hey, every home he's entered into, this has been the modus operandum of Jesus. He goes into an ordinary situation, and with a few short words and phrases, he's begun to uncover the issues of the heart. We would do well to take something from Jesus' approach to this conversation. Okay? That's the first point. It's the manner in which Jesus engages this Pharisee. The second part is that Jesus clarifies the proper role of external conformity to the law. He clarifies the proper role of external conformity to the law. Now, you understand, you've, 
You've heard this passage before. As you heard it read aloud, you just intuitively understand what's going on, don't you? Okay. Jesus is exposing the outward expression of religiosity. The outward expression of conformity to the law is exposing it in this Pharisee, and he's demonstrating or showing the man how though on the outside he has conformed to the law, inwardly his heart is far from God. Right? That's, that's what's happening in this passage. That's why in verse 41, uh, uh, sorry, in verse 39, Jesus says, now you Pharisees, you cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. You fools. It's a very simple analogy, isn't it? You're like saucers. You're like cups. You're like dishes, right? And on the outside, it looks like you just went through the longest cleaning cycle in the dishwasher with cascade dish detergent. You came out sparkling clean, okay? You look at the dish, and it looks very pretty. But you open up the dish, and you find inside rotten filth. You find soup that's a month old and is growing mold on the top of it. That's what you find in the inside. That's what Jesus is exposing in the heart of the Pharisee. You, you want another analogy? I'll give you an analogy of my own, okay? I like to go to arcades with my children. That's something we do in our leisure time. And I like the arcade probably more than they like the arcade, okay? So we go, and I get like $20 worth of tokens for myself and $10 worth of tokens for them. And uh, we play the arcade games, and when we play the arcade games, we don't play for fun. We play for tickets, okay? We're playing the games where you get the big jackpots, right? I'm talking about 500,000 tickets at a time. And our goal is just to get as many tickets as we can. I don't even know why we do that, but it's a competition, right? We, we always get to the end of our arcade playing, and we go up to the front desk. You know how it is. You present your tickets there, and they tell you, you've got 5,000 tickets. You can get anything on this back wall. And from 15 feet away, everything on that wall looks spectacular. Right? They got the disco balls, the lava lamps, the samurai swords, the nunchucks. They got everything, and it looks good. And you start picking the things off the wall that you want. My kids do this. I don't do the ticket part. And you... you they give you the thing in the box, and you're walking out the door, and you open it up, and you are immediately disappointed, aren't you? It's not what it looked like from 15 feet away. It's a piece of cheap plastic. The paint's already coming off. By the time you get home in the car, the thing's broken. Almost always goes right in the trash can. This is what Jesus is saying to the Pharisee. From 15 feet away, man, you look good. You're doing everything. Fifteen feet away, people are going to go, ooh, ah, look at that Pharisee. But you get close. You begin to perceive the inner man, and you find something smells a little bit rotten. That's what Jesus says to this man as he speaks these words of conviction in Luke chapter 11. Now, I want you to pay attention here because I think at this point, this is where we often misunderstand this passage. Because I did not say this morning that Jesus says that we should be rid of our external conformity to the law. I said that Jesus clarifies the proper role of external conformity to the law, and that is a very different thing. 
You see, we often read a passage like this, and we might be inclined to think, okay, Jesus wants us to, to think good in our heart. He wants us to desire mercy and justice, but He doesn't care about those outward religion-type things. He doesn't care about our conformity to His law. He doesn't care about the words that we say. He cares rather about the condition of our heart. But that's not the case of what's happening in the passage this morning. Because Jesus, right after that verse 39, He says, you fools, did not He who made the outside make the inside also? See, there's not a priority, at least in these words. There's something of an equating. God made the inside and the outside. God cares about the inside and the outside. You see, I, I think that we often tend to divide these things. We tend to divide them in our minds. It exposes a fatal misunderstanding that we have even of Scripture. You see, we tend to look at the Old Testament and we say that in the Old Testament, the Lord was concerned with outward conformity to the law. After all, 613 laws in the book of Leviticus of outward things to do, right? That is the Old Testament. And then we look at the New Testament and we say, well, that's the New Testament. God is concerned with the inner things. And even if we don't say that, even if we don't say, well, there's two different versions of God, we often live like that. But that's not the case. It's not the case here in the passage, nor is it the case in all of the Old Testament or the New Testament. It is the same God yesterday, today, and forevermore. It is the same God who made both the outside and the inside. You see, later Jesus uses these words. He says in verse 42, these things you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Okay? We're going to talk about that in a second. But let me say, we often, we create that false dichotomy in our minds. Let me tell you even how we often think about the whole of Christianity. We often think that there are liberal progressive Christians who care about mercy and justice and poverty, and programs, and people. And then there are the conservative, Bible-believing Christians who care about the, the worship and glory of God, and faithfulness to His Word, and, and sin, and holiness, right? And there are, there's this divide, and we pick one side or the other, don't we? Okay? That's not what Jesus is saying here. See what He's saying? He's saying you, you don't pick the inside or the outside. You don't pick mercy or holiness. You don't pick justice or reverence. The example that he gives is an interesting one. In verse 42, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb, and you neglect justice and the love of God. You understand what he's speaking about with the Pharisee here? The Pharisee was going into his herb garden. Okay, this is how absurd his outward expression of religion had become. He's going into his herb garden, and there is growing his mint and his basil and his thyme, his oregano. I don't know what all herbs the Pharisee grew, but there they are in his little mint garden, and his wife is there holding the bowl, and he picks the mint, and he's counting the leaves. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine for us, one for God. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine for us, one for God. 
And he's counting, and his wife is saying, you might have missed one there. Levi, go back and count again. Okay? Nine for us, one for God. And what Jesus says to the Pharisee is not, listen, hey, your, your desire to tithe to God or to give alms to the poor is absurd. That's not what Jesus said. What he says is your commitment to that at the expense of justice, mercy, and love of God is absurd. You ought to have done one without neglecting the other. It's not a comparison between tithes and almsgiving and reverence and holiness and obedience to the law and then uh, being and doing. It is all of this is part of the grace and mercy you've received from God. Therefore, you go and you do abundantly. You see, the message of Jesus Christ is that the follower of God, by the work of the Holy Spirit in their hearts, does not ask the question, what's the minimum I have to do? What's the minimum amount of reverence I need? What's the minimum amount of obedience I need? What's the minimum amount of times I need to go to church? What's the minimum amount that I need to give to the church? What's the minimum amount of holiness I need in my life? What's the minimum amount of mercy and justice I need to show? What's the minimum amount of love I need to show to my neighbors? The follower of Jesus Christ does not ask about the minimum. Follower of Jesus Christ who has received abundant grace and mercy cannot help but flow over with grace, mercy, reverence, holiness, and obedience. The follower of Jesus Christ will say, how can I do more over and above to honor the Lord my God? How can I do more over and above to love my neighbor as myself? The Word of God says that He has lavished His mercy upon us. You know what lavished means? It means like flowing over, heaping upon. He has heaped His mercy upon us. Are are we heaping our own love and mercy upon others? Do we revere the Lord our God, honor Him in obedience and holiness, and move towards others with mercy and grace, the same mercy and grace we've received? That's what Jesus is speaking to as He speaks to this Pharisee. And so we see Jesus clarifying the proper role of external conformity to the law. Of external conformity to the law. You see, the outward was designed by God to be a fruit of the inward. That as the heart is changed by the work of the Spirit, the product will be both inward transformation and outward conformity to the character and law of God. So the outward then becomes an indicator of the inward change which was lacking in the Pharisee. The third and final point this morning is that Jesus reveals the importance of internal self-honesty. Jesus reveals the importance of internal self-honesty. Again, the crescendo of this passage is verse 44. This is the moment that the conversation is building to. This is how Jesus leaves the Pharisee in this lunch conversation. And He says to him, For you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. 
Do you know what he's really saying when he says that to the Pharisee? You see, the Pharisee sat down to lunch with Jesus, and he said, Jesus, how can you not wash your hands? You are unclean, and now you've made us unclean. And Jesus says in response, you think by not washing my hands I've made you unclean. Well, you know what? You're an empty grave full of rot and filth. And you know what? When, uh, when there was a grave during this time period, okay, the grave had to be visibly marked because if a Jewish person was walking along the road and they stumbled upon a grave that was unmarked and they came into contact with even the things that were above the grave, they became unclean. It was a terrible predicament for a Jewish person, okay? And Jesus says to the Pharisee, okay, washing hands, you think that makes you unclean? Well, you know what? You in your innermost self are full of rot and decay. And, and not that you make others outwardly unclean, but the inner deceit of the heart is laid like a trap for those who come into contact with you. For you present the facade of an outward holiness without the inward transformation of the heart. And you are leading others like the Pied Piper to their own destruction. And so Jesus speaks these words of conviction to the Pharisee, the unmarked grave. Let me ask you a question. Why don't we, or why do we fail to examine our inner selves? Why do we not reflect on the condition of our hearts, the condition of our souls? Why was it so easy for the Pharisees to build Lots of rules and rules to follow the law of God, yet so hard for them to look inward at the condition of their own hearts. You see, I think it's very simple. To look inward uncovers the self-deception of the heart. To look inward uncovers, as Jeremiah mentioned, Chapter 17 this morning, our Old Testament reading, it uncovers the deceitfulness of our own hearts. They're wicked above all else. You see, to examine our hearts is often more than our sinful souls can bear. To look in and see the rot and the decay of the sinfulness of the heart is a weight apart from the Spirit of God that we cannot bear ourselves. Do you realize that about your own hearts? The Pharisees couldn't examine the inside of the cup. They couldn't reflect and assess inwardly because they were seeking to justify themselves by their own actions. And to examine the heart of a self-justifying person would be a potent dose of reality. Too much. Too much to handle. See, for those who seek to justify themselves, who think that they might be justified by their own actions in this world, they have to do it with a substantial amount of self-deception and lies. 
We, if we're to justify ourselves by our own actions, we have to look inward with rose-colored glasses. We have to do it with eyes 90% shut. We cannot see our own hearts and still conclude in our own minds that we can be justified by our own actions. Or else the mirage of self-driven salvation will come crumbling down. And so to turn inward, to look in is just off limits. We don't go there. And you know what? For us, it is easier, it's just easier if we clean up the outside, isn't it? That's the easy way for us to go. We can do our hair better. We can exercise our bodies more. We can eat more healthy. We can identify with a certain group of people that really encourages us or uplifts us. We can do a lot of things in conforming the outer self to distract us from what's happening in the inner heart, in the inner self. One pastor I listened to is preaching this passage. He said, listen, if you knew my own heart, you wouldn't want to listen to me preach a sermon. And if I knew your own heart, I wouldn't want to preach a sermon to you. It's an honest reflection of the heart of man. See, but for those who are in Christ, that type of checking the heart, it's safe. It's good, isn't it? It's refreshing, worshipful, pleasing to God, good for His people. That's what we experience. I, I hope you do. That's what I definitely experience every Sunday morning, right? We come together, we sing the praises of God, we confess our sin, we look inwardly at that moment of confession and we say, wow, my heart is sinful. More than I ever realized, the time of confession is not long enough. I begin that silent prayer and by the time we say amen, I'm still listing my own sin. I know the darkness of my own heart, but thank God that we move to the assurance of pardon and we know that we have forgiveness of sin. You see, for the Christian, the question isn't, is the outside clean or is the inside clean? For some of us, the outside may be cleaner than others, spick and span or a little bit dirty, somewhere in between, doesn't matter. And the inner self we may reflect on and we may find there's rottenness there, but for the Christian, we know that the rottenness is being removed and it's being replaced with the new self. Not all at once, but slowly and surely by the work of the Spirit, by the blood of Christ Jesus, the old man is being put to death and the new man is being raised to new life. And so as followers of Christ, this type of reflection is so good for us. It is so good for us to look at the inner self and to see the need of the Lord Jesus Christ. The hope of the gospel, the thing that allows us to deal honestly with our own hearts, that we've been justified by another, one whom was perfect and pure, both inside and out on our behalf, who gave generously of himself without any reserve, showed mercy to those of us who are in great poverty and sickness, showed mercy to those who are in great need, so that we don't hear the words that Jesus gives to the Pharisee, woe to you, 
but we only hear, blessed are you. Blessed are you, children of God. For your sins have been washed white as snow. You are clean. Your hearts are sprinkled from an evil conscience. Bodies are washed with pure water. This is the beauty of this gospel, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he who has ears, let him hear. He who has eyes, let him see. Jesus Christ, the one who has redeemed you, who makes it safe for you to look inward and reflect on your desperate need of the blood of Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you this day and Lord, we ask that we would glorify you. May our words and the meditations of our hearts, may they be pleasing to you, O Lord, our God. For you have redeemed us. And we are the people who are called by your name. So may we, your people, recognize that we are not in and of ourselves holy and righteous, that there's nothing that we've done to earn your favor, that there's no good that we have done which has been satisfying to you apart from your Son, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord God, may you lead us in daily lives of confession and repentance. May every act of our bodies, may every word of our mouth, may it be of humility and repentance, recognizing the sinfulness of our own souls, but then seeing the righteousness of Christ. And Lord, as you move us from the sorrow of seeing the inner decay to the jubilance of receiving the righteousness of Christ, May you let us rest securely in the joy of the gospel and the beauty and the thanksgiving of knowing that before eternity passed, you loved us and you set your affection upon us that we would be made children of God. So, Lord God, let us leave this place with great rejoicing. Let us leave this place singing your praises, for you are the God who has done this. You have done it before us in our midst, miraculously redeeming us, and so we praise you, and we praise your Son, Christ Jesus. We praise your Spirit who works in us. We ask that you would continue this good work among your people. For your glory, in the name of Jesus Christ, we ask all of this. Amen.